Hey, let's open our Bibles to the uh, book of Jeremiah. Navigate on your electronic device. Might want to put your phones and uh, iPads and iPhones on uh, vibrate so that I don't have to make fun of you when they ring. I don't, you know, we're, we're pretty liberal in this one area. We don't tell you to turn your phones off where, you know, most places they want you to turn your phones off. Uh, we love to have your phone on and you guys can text each other, text me, be doing stuff, but uh, uh, just put it on vibrate. We're in Jeremiah chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 4 and read into chapter 9, verse 1. The topic we find there, Jeremiah's heart grows faint as he longs for revival among God's people. The title of our message, The Revival of the Faintest. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we, uh, we're so thankful, Lord, to be here this morning because we understand that uh, you have brought us to this place, that this is a divine appointment. Maybe we thought we chose to come here, and in some sense, I guess that's true, Lord, but you want us here, you brought us here, you led us here, not just to this place, but to this time, to this moment in our lives, so that we could hear what you have to say. Lord, I want to believe that this is the message that you have for each of us to hear today, and I know that that's true, Lord, or at least it can be true as we yield to the ministry of your Holy Spirit because he can take this word which is alive and powerful and he can speak it directly to our hearts. We can hear what you want to say to us regardless of what's being said. And so, Lord, we pray for a spiritual transaction on an immense basis, Lord, that you would just touch our hearts and that you would show us Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead. Lord, if there's anyone here that's not a believer, They've never truly, honestly, really had their sins forgiven by confessing them and coming to the cross of Jesus Christ. They're not born again. I pray, Lord, that you would deal with their hearts and that they would cry out to you. Lord, in the New Testament, while people were still talking, people came to a conviction of sin and cried out to you and asked what they must do to be saved. And so I pray, Lord, that that would happen. If there's anyone here that's not a believer, that they would know, Lord, by the conviction of your spirit, that they're not... Uh, in the kingdom of God, and that they would come to know you. And, and for believers, Lord, we've come to be encouraged. It doesn't mean we don't need to be convicted, but it certainly means we shouldn't be condemned because there is no condemnation for us that are in Christ Jesus. And so as we work through this topic, Lord, of revival, I pray that we would not be condemned, but that we would be convicted and that we would desire everything that you desire for our lives and for our church and for our county and our city and our country. In Jesus' name we pray, and those who agreed said, amen. Evan Roberts was born in the village of Lafour near Swansea in Wales in the year 1878. He grew up in the church, and as a young man, he attended meetings six days a week. He was deeply committed to praying for revival. He worked in the coal mines for 12 years, then he became a blacksmith. In 1903, Roberts entered a school to prepare for the ministry. There he crossed paths with Reverend Seth Joshua, an evangelist who called for a deeper obedience to the Holy Spirit. During one of Joshua's meetings, Evan Roberts came to the front, kneeled, and cried in agony, Lord, bend me. While some observed it as an ecstatic emotional experience, Roberts later gave testimony that a wave of peace flooded his soul and that he felt ablaze to tell all of Wales about Jesus Christ. In October 1904, Roberts left his studies and went home to preach the gospel, and so began the Welsh revival. 
The second night, the church service lasted three hours. Within a week, the crowds were staying until three o'clock in the morning. The second week, the small church was overflowing with over 800 people. It spread, and soon all of South Wales was ablaze. Within two months, conversions numbered 34,000. Within six months, 100,000 converts were added to Welsh churches. Spirit-filled gatherings were held in homes, in barns, in coal mines, in quarries, even in pigsties. The revival affected Welsh society at large. J. Edwin Orr, who studies revival, wrote, Drunkenness was immediately cut in half, and many taverns went bankrupt. Crime was so diminished that judges were presented with white gloves, signifying that there were no cases of murder, assault, rape, or robbery, or the like to consider. The police became unemployed in many districts. Stoppages occurred in coal mines, not due to unpleasantness between management and workers, but because so many foul-mouthed miners became converted and stopped using foul language that the horses which hauled the coal trucks in the mines could no longer understand what was being said to them. (laughs) That's what I call revival. I've known more than one person who almost can't talk after they get saved because their, their language has been so foul they don't know how to talk. They have to learn how to talk all over again. Now, fast forward about a century. According to an article by The Independent, England and Wales have one of the worst crime rates among developed nations for rapes, burglaries, and robberies. The study for the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime found England and Wales had more burglaries and robberies per 100,000 people than the United States in 2006. A 2001 census showed that in Wales, fewer than one in 10 people regularly attend church. Simultaneously, it showed that over 70%, 7 of 10, see themselves as Christians. Wales is definitely a post-revival nation. And so was Judah in the 6th century, the subject of our text this morning. After a brief revival under King Josiah, the Jews were again mired in their sin. If some of the consequences of a genuine revival are massive positive changes in the morals of a society, we are definitely a post-revival society as well. But rather than look out at our society Let's look at ourselves to see if we, individually and corporately, remain revived or if we, too, have some symptoms of post-revival. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, check yourself for post-revival apathy. Number two, check yourself for post-revival ardor. First of all, let's look at some apathy in chapter 8, verses 4 through 17. Now, in verse 8 of chapter 8, Jeremiah quoted the people as saying, the law of the Lord is with us. It's a reference probably to the discovery of the law, the book of Deuteronomy specifically by King Josiah. King Josiah ordered some renovations and restorations to the temple, and while they were cleaning the temple, they found the book of Deuteronomy, which they hadn't read for many, many, many years. They read it. King Josiah began a series of reforms, and it led to a brief Revival, But the description of their society in these verses reveals that their revival was a thing of the past. The signs that a people are no longer revived are really pretty obvious. They're in open rebellion. They're sinning against the Lord. The Jews, however, wouldn't acknowledge their backsliding. They acted though everything was fine. 
That's what we want to focus on, how it is a believer can be obviously post-revival but not be ready to admit it. And so let's look at verse four. Moreover, you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, will they fall and not rise? Will one turn away and not return? We sometimes make fun of the phrase, I've fallen and I can't get up. Uh, It's just come into our culture. It's really not something I guess we should joke about because the original commercial was, you know, a lady who had fallen and couldn't get up and she needs lifeline or something like that. But it's just one of those things that people make fun of. Now, the Jews are depicted here as falling down and not wanting to get back up or not even realizing that they were falling down. It's absurd to think that if you're walking along and you trip, you'll just stay down and then start thinking that life should be lived on a horizontal plane, that that's really where you want to be. The same with his analogy here, they would turn and not return. It's as if a person is set upon a desired destination, then for no good reason, they turn away. Neither of these are logical behaviors. And that's, the, I think, the point of these verses. The, the, you know, God is saying, it's like people who fall down but don't get up. It's like people who were headed in one direction. They were focused, laser focused on that, and then suddenly they veer from it. It doesn't make logical sense. Sometimes believers don't act logically. You look at something they're doing or saying, and you say, where did that come from? What's the basis for that way of thinking? It seems so foreign, so different to everything you knew about that person and everything that they were set upon. They act as if nothing has changed when in fact they've fallen and won't get up. They act like they're still headed in a godly direction when in fact they've turned around. And you're scratching your head because you see it clearly, but they act like everything's the same, everything's fine, but there's a weirdness in your relationship. And so verse 5, why has this people slidden back, Jerusalem, in a perpetual backsliding? Here's the answer. They hold fast to deceit, and they refuse to return. If a person is sinning, refusing to return, acting illogically, then they're deceiving themselves. Self-deception is the major reason believers fail to recognize and admit they are backslidden. For example, if a person can make excuses for themselves for what they once understood to be obviously wrong and sinful, they are self-deceived. A lot of times I'll ask people, it doesn't always jog anything, it's not even always very successful, but I'll ask people who are in a, a sinful situation, I'll say, let me ask you this, what would you have said six months ago to a person who is in your situation right now? And a lot of times people will honestly say, well, I would tell them to repent. Are you going to repent? Maybe. Maybe not. I'll have to think about it. And you begin to understand, oh, boy, the problem here, the reason we can't connect, the reason this seems so weird and strange is because this person is self-deceived. They have deceived themselves into thinking that their behavior, which is ungodly, is really godly on some level or that God doesn't really care about it. Uh, And and that's the situation Jeremiah is describing. Post-revival Judah going through the motions of religion, uh, but living in sin and deceiving themselves into thinking that it was okay. Verse 6, I listened and heard, they don't speak aright. No man repented of his wickedness, saying, what have I done? 
Everyone turned to his own course as a horse rushes into the battle. Here we see the self-deceived person is excited about their new course when it's clearly not a godly course. They're like a horse bred for battle. They rush headlong into danger. and They don't even see it. Verse 7, even the stork in the heavens knows her appointed times, and the turtle dove, the swift and the swallow, observe the time of their coming. But my people do not know the judgment of the Lord. Animals always follow God's proper order for them, whereas God's people sometimes ignore his ordering of their lives by his judgments, meaning his law. And so, you know, Jeremiah, God picks on some, some birds, picks on the stork. He says, storks know what they're doing. They have set times. They observe the natural order of things. They deliver your baby right on time. <laughs> hey, I've seen Dumbo. I know how all this works. <laughs> and then he says, but my people who have a brain... And who can think, and you would think they'd be more intelligent than a stork, and they have something to set their lives by, my commandments, my judgments, my word, they go their own way. And so this is another one of those areas where Jeremiah is kind of suggesting that if you don't obey God, you're dumber than a stork. Now, maybe storks are pretty intelligent, I don't know, but I think I want to be smarter than a stork, don't you? And so it's a very interesting analogy. Verse 8, how can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? Look, the false pen of the scribe certainly works falsehood. The wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom do they have? By the way, you hear all the time from people, you know, you hear how intelligent people are, how smart they are. They use big words. I remember I've, I've used this before. It's the only big word I remember. Uh, but I was at uh, Gino's uh, graduation from college a few, many years ago now, and uh, the guy who was speaking used the word obfuscate. And uh, I, no, no one had any idea what that means, and, and now I've even forgotten what it means. You know, and, stuff. and so you look at people and think, man, these people are so smart. But I like what it says here. They've rejected the word of the Lord, so what wisdom do they have? If you're, if you're looking for an answer to the ultimate problems and situations of your life, no one has that answer if they have rejected the Lord who made you and knows you and bought you with his blood. And so you shouldn't ever be looking anywhere other than to the Lord for the ultimate answers in your life. I don't care how smart people are, the smarter they get, the dumber they get, I guess, if they've rejected the Lord. It's like my dad used to say, I went to college to get stupid. And in some ways he was right. But uh, so they've rejected the Lord. Therefore, I'll give their wives to others, their fields to those who inherit them. Verse 10, because from the least even to the greatest, everyone is given to covetousness. From the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They've healed the hurt of the daughters of my people slightly, saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. The impact of these verses is to say that those who ought to be teaching God's word by precept and example were purposely misinterpreting it to allow for their own sin and to uh, comfort the people that everything was okay even though they were in sin. There are two things to point out here, at least two things. Number one, first, there's no pass if you're a leader. Instead, you're held to an even higher standard. Second, a post-revival believer will often leave 
where people know them and will honestly reprove them in favor of another group where they can hide or where the message is watered down. And so people who are in sin, they're post-revival, they're looking for people to say, no, you're okay, peace, everything's okay, just go on. I remember years and years ago, we were in a situation, there was a, a family in the church and, and um, the wife was divorcing her husband. It was an unbiblical divorce. There was no real biblical grounds for the divorce. Uh, and um, at one point I was talking to her and she, I was encouraging her to come back to church and telling her she needed to be in church. And she says, well, I found a church uh, that doesn't believe the way about divorce that you guys do. Uh, and uh, so what she had found is a more liberal church that really didn't care about the subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Uh, and, and so, you know, I don't know if you're aware of this, maybe I shouldn't tell you this, but you can find people that will tell you that everything is fine, that what you're doing is okay no matter what it is you're doing, short of maybe murdering somebody uh, and, and a few, you know, really heinous, but, you know, you can, you're fine, don't worry, you know, this is all, you know, who knows when the Bible was written and who wrote it, and you can read anything you want. It's just really, you know, as long as we do the things that are in the Sermon on the Mount, we're okay, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, and, and so a lot of times people will do that. They'll just break off and they'll find, uh, in order to remain self-deceived, they'll say, well, now I, I am going to a church, and they're telling me I'm fine. You used to tell me I was fine, then I started sinning, and you told me I was in sin, but I'd rather listen to these people who say that what I'm doing isn't really sin. So now I've got the best of both worlds, and that's kind of where the Jews were in the 6th century and someplace we don't ever want to be. Verse 12, were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. In the time of their punishment, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. I will surely consume them, says the Lord. No grape shall be on the vine, no figs on the fig tree. The leaf shall fade, and the things I have given them shall pass away from them. God's covenant with his Old Testament people uh, was physical blessing for obedience. Uh, and so God is saying, hey, if they're going to disobey, I have to remove all of their physical blessing. As we'll see later in the book, he removes them from the land itself. In terms of our application, it's becoming more common for a person to openly admit their behavior but have no sense at all of sin or shame about it. Maybe they'll quit doing it. Maybe they won't. They act like there's no urgency or who knows what's right and wrong. Uh, and, and again, six months earlier, a year earlier, they would have been in the camp of the biblically sound saying to someone else, hey, what you're doing is sinful, but because they've gotten involved in something and been drawn along and become desensitized, they're deceiving themselves. Verse 14, why do we sit still? Assemble yourselves, let us enter fortified cities and let us be silent there. For the Lord our God has put us to silence and given us water of gall to drink because we have sinned against the Lord. We looked for peace, but no good came. For a time of health and there was trouble. The snorting of his horses was heard from Dan. The whole land trembled at the sound of the neighing of his strong ones. For they have come and devoured the land and all that is in it, the city and all those who dwell in it. For behold, I will send serpents among you, vipers which cannot be charmed, and they shall bite you, says the Lord. The Jews were sitting still, thinking that nothing would really happen to them since they were in Jerusalem, since they had the law, and since they had the temple. This obviously is a, a theme that we hit almost every week in these judgment passages in Jeremiah. Jeremiah is hammering them with the idea that if they don't repent, God is going to judge them. And they're in Jerusalem. 
saying, hey, wait a minute, this is Jerusalem where God has placed his name. This is the temple where God dwells. Even if we are doing wrong, God is going to defend himself. Jerusalem will never fall. The temple will never fall. We're okay. God, however, wouldn't sit for it. He would discipline them by bringing the armies of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon to destroy the city and the temple. He would carry them away captive for 70 long years. Now, when a believer is continuing to live in sin, refusing to deal with their backsliding, uh, there's a lack of peace and health in their relationships. He mentioned that, those terms in this section, peace and health. You feel awkward around them. They sense it, but they tend to blame you for being judgmental. It's really, really sad because you love them and you want God's best for them, but there's a problem that needs acknowledging. If you're a believer here this morning, or if you hear this some other time, uh, and, and you know that there's awkwardness in your relationship with other believers, they love you, we love you. But it's a struggle to figure out how to have a relationship with a person who says, I am in sin and I want to continue living in sin. I want you to change your mind about that and just receive me just the way I am. We love you. We, we want to embrace you, but we also want to restore you because there's something wrong and it's wrong with you. Because you're no longer walking with the Lord. None of us are perfect. No one's saying that. But some people, they're in absolute, obvious, open sin. And it's difficult. It's really hard. Churches sometimes go overboard. Then they shun people. I don't want to have anything to do with you. I don't think that's what the Lord tells us to do. We're to, we're to go after that person. And to keep going after them. There may come a time when something serious needs to occur in terms of a a discipline or something like that. But, you know, let's not go there. Let's just say, look, why don't you just repent? It's so easy. I know it's difficult because you're self-deceived and now you're in a, a tough place. But all you need to do is throw yourself on the mercy of God, trust in the grace of God, go to the cross of Jesus Christ, just like you did when you first got saved. And the Lord is ready to forgive and to restore. And so is the body of Christ. And so if you've ever been in a situation like this, and you all have, you've been on one side of it or the other, hopefully on you know, the side where you feel awkward, not on the sinning side, but all of us are sinners. But it just creates an awkwardness in relationships. And so the question to ask yourself is, do I fit this profile? Working backwards... If I'm comfortable being backslidden in a behavior I once identified as sin and I'm therefore acting illogically, then I'm self-deceived and I need to heed the judgment of the Lord about my situation rather than my own thoughts and feelings. I just need to repent. I need to turn away and turn back to the Lord. Or as it says in Thessalonians, I need to turn to God from my idols and I find what happens. He receives me every time with full forgiveness and grace. Now, as we go on into the remaining verses, check yourself for post-revival ardor or passion. I don't know of anything right now in the United States or in California or in Central California or in Kings County that could be called revival in the historic sense. Now, that's not a criticism. It's not saying that believers or local churches are all blowing it. Not at all. 
Churches are doing a great work in Hanford, in Kings County, in California, in our country. I think this is a great church, personally, and that the Lord, uh, and what I mean by that is that the, the Spirit of God is at work in our church, ministering to people. So we're not criticizing the church, but it's an honest assessment of the bigger spiritual landscape that we are not in a time of historic revival where society is being changed in dramatic ways because of the outpouring of God the Holy Spirit. What is revival? Scholars who have studied it give it this working description. An evangelical revival is an extraordinary work of God in which Christians repent of their sins as they become intensely aware of God's presence in their midst. They manifest a positive response to God and renewed obedience to the known will of God, resulting in both a deepening of their individual and corporate experience with God and an increased concern to win others to Jesus Christ. Scholars go on to say that a genuine revival impacts positively the wider society in which it occurs. In fact, Douglas Shields wrote in 1905, there's a theory that all social and moral advances may be traced to religious revivals. That is to say, revival breaks out among God's people. It creates an awakening in the uh, lives of non-believers, which affects society because now everyone is changed for the good. Should we pray for revival? I came across this quote in a book summarizing 10 great revivals in recent history, and uh, I think we should pray for revival, but this is an interesting perspective. The writer says, usually when we pray for revival, we're thinking about the bad guys, and we're telling God to sick them. Little do we realize that revival begins with us, the people of God. As a matter of fact, we've got a suggestion for those who want revival. Don't pray for it. Just repent of all known sin. Do everything you're supposed to do. Give God all, not part, but all of your time, and you will experience revival. We might say uh, this, don't seek revival. Seek God with a new passion and see what happens. Now, that seems to be the general theme of these remaining verses. It seems to me, as you read through them, that Jeremiah is seeking God with a fresh, renewed passion. It says in verse 18, I would comfort myself in sorrow. My heart is faint in me. Listen, the voice, the cry of the daughter of my people from a far country. Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images, with foreign idols? The harvest is past. Summer is ended. We are not saved. In verse 18, it seems that Jeremiah has sorrow for the sin that's all around him, that his heart has grown faint from his concern for God's glory and the people's welfare. And so we would ask of ourselves, do we have sorrow for sin, my own sin as well as the sin around me? Is our heart really faint from talking to God about it so much that it wearies us? And I can only speak for what I hear and in my own mind, but a lot of, there's a, there's a lot of talk about sin and how bad sin is and particular sins in particular, uh, but I, I, I don't know that... I don't know that we have this Jeremiah weeping spirit about the damage that it's doing uh, overall or about the individuals that are lost and going to hell. We're not saved, it says in verse 20. So many people around us remain lost and dead and perishing. Soon the harvest will be past. And so I should be concentrating my efforts on spreading the gospel. Do I understand that I am one of the workers in the harvest? Um, 
Not everybody's called to be a minister or a missionary in the classic sense, but all of us are called to be ministers and missionaries in an everyday sense. Our understanding of the uh, work of the church is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And certainly there's ministries, you know, that takes place on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or every day during the week as a church ministers one to another. But a lot of what we're talking about is equipping every believer that comes through the door to go back out to wherever God has planted them to do the work of the ministry as a missionary in that field. Now, if you got saved later in life like I did, you can think back to when you got saved and remember that everything was all about Jesus. That's all you thought about. That's all you, you kind of understood that if you were a title insurance salesman, you were a Christian who was a title insurance salesman and that that was your mission field. You weren't a title insurance salesman who happened to be a Christian uh, and would bring that in every now and then. You thought, okay, Lord, you've got me here, and, and what do you want me to do? And, and there was that, that initial passion and excitement and love for the Lord, and you shared with your family, and you shared with your friends, and you shared with everybody. Uh, you know. And then we all have a tendency to become post-revival. We really do. I do. Maybe it's just me. But, and, and then you have to be reminded by passages like this that, whoa, we need to be about the work of the ministry. I'm a minister. It, it, you know, it, nothing really needs to change except on my orientation where I think, you know, I kind of need to get back into a deeper walk with the Lord in the sense of realizing who I am and what I'm all about. And I've, I've been distracted by the world. You know, the world, that's all it tries to do is distract you, to desensitize you. You're in a battle every day with the things of the world, with the, your own flesh and with the devil to try and get you off track, to get you worrying about, you know, what's really going on and your future and do you have enough money and when are you going to do this and how's that going to happen? And right in front of us is this mission field. And, and we need to just be about that business. Verse 21, for the hurt of the daughter of my people, I am hurt. I am mourning. Astonishment has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? Jeremiah speaks of mourning and astonishment. In other words, he was gripped by the spiritual condition people were in. He was astonished they could be so far from the Lord, but he mourned for them. Verse 22, he recognized that there is a great physician who can save and heal them. These verses describe a heartfelt ardor and passion for the lost. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 9, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Uh, this is interesting. You know, Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. And here what he's saying is, I cried so much I didn't have any tears. Some of you have experienced that. Uh, I can't. I, I can't honestly say I've ever cried so much that I had no more tears. So I just want to give a disclaimer. But I know people have cried that much. And I'm thinking that if I get to that point, if I don't have any tears, I'm, I'm cried out, right? You think, okay, that's good enough. But Jeremiah says, Lord, I don't have any more tears. I've been crying so much for this people. I want you to create for me a fountain from which to draw more tears. Because... My crying must continue because these people are headed in the wrong direction and I weep for them. A.T. Schofield noted, since the days of Pentecost, 
There is no record of the sudden and direct work of the Spirit of God upon the souls of men that has not been accompanied by events more or less abnormal. Uh, And so I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you, as we're talking a little bit about the history of revival, sometimes there are strange phenomena where people will just cry for hours and hours or stay at a church meeting till three in in the morning. You say, okay, you know, God bless you, and people just stay, and they continue to pray and to weep and all of that kind of thing. Now, having said that, experiences don't mean you're having revival. This, it's so difficult, you know, because I think what people do is they say, well, if certain experiences accompany revival, if I have those experiences, then I can say it's revival. And unless it is spreading out of the meeting and into society, it's not really revival. It might be exciting, it might be fun, it might be meaningful, but it's not really revival. So we're not about enthusiastic experiences, although we wouldn't be against certain enthusiastic experiences if it was genuine. If you study historic revivals, you'll find that there are as many differences as there are similarities. Some are instigated by a crisis, such as when the banks collapsed before what is called the layman's prayer revival. Others come at peaceful times, such as the Great Awakening. Some start with one extraordinary leader, while others begin as a group seeks the Lord. I talked about the Welsh revival. Evan Roberts figures prominently, but there were many, many different groups uh, and different individuals who were also ministering at that time. It was a general revival that hit Wales all at once. What is always true, however, of revival is that it always involves fervent prayer. The first great revival, the mother of all revivals, we would say, was on the day of Pentecost. God sent his Holy Spirit, and the world was turned upside down for Jesus Christ. What were those 120 disciples doing in the upper room? They were praying. They were seeking the Lord. What I like about the New Testament church, the early church, the first century church, whatever you want to call it, They had no idea what they were doing, no idea whatsoever, no plan, no idea. Any ideas they had were the wrong ideas. When Jesus ascended to heaven, they said, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom at this time? After all that they'd been through with the Lord, they still didn't understand what was going on. And then the Lord said, hey, Tarry in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father comes upon you. And and at least they did that. They went and they prayed. The Holy Spirit came upon them. And then Peter had no idea what he was doing on the day of Pentecost when he was preaching. He didn't get to his altar call. He just kept talking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And they finally had to say, hey, what do we, we want to get saved. Peter, later on, he's talking to the, he doesn't want to go to the Gentiles. God has to give him a notable vision and say, you're going to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And he says, okay. So he goes and he's preaching to the household of Cornelius. The Holy Spirit falls upon them and saves them before he gets to his altar call. And, And, you know, one thing about these guys, they had no idea what they were doing. Some scholars point out that they didn't even understand the plan of going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so persecution had to break out to get them out of Jerusalem. I'm comforted by that. You know why? I don't have any idea what I'm doing. And if you think you have some idea of what you're doing, then you're in the wrong category. And so, you know, the, the thing here is, well, what do we do? How do we bring revival? I don't know. What I do know is that I should quit being self-deceived 
that I should enjoy personal revival, that I should pray, that I should get together with other believers and pray, and then just let God be God. I would hope that there would be a great revival that could break out in Kings County, in Central California, in California, in our nation. Those are the things, that's the thing that will change our nation. There's other things we, we need to be concerned about as good citizens and fighting for and working towards and all that. I don't want to get into that. A lot of people say, well, why don't you talk more about those things? Because those things follow revival. You can't reform a society to bring revival, but you can have revival that reforms a society. If revival tarries, that's God's business. I want to seek it. The guys in the, their book, they said, hey, don't pray for it, just repent. Why don't we do both? On a personal level, on a corporate level, pray and repent and see what God would do. And at least I know I can be revived. I know you can be revived as we walk with the Lord. Amen?